Hello and welcome to the Drabblecast, 10 years of strange stories, retrospective, part two. In part one, you heard about our conception and where the idea came from. You heard a little inside baseball about me back in the day, and you heard from our early editorial team, my co-editors and best friends, Luke and Kendall. Let's jump right in now where we left off. The year is 2010, and the Drabblecast was looking for a new editor to help out. One that we eventually found with writer Matthew Bay, a guy who had been editing a really weird but hilarious publication out of Austin, Texas called Space Squid. You can already tell we're two peas in a pod, huh? And Matthew had submitted a few times to the Drabblecast so far with no luck, before eventually landing a couple hits with his really gross parasite story called Eggs in Episode 8, and two really great stories that we ran in our premium content podcast, Drabblecast B-Sides, Snuggle the Dead in Episode 8, and The Elves Hate You in Episode 13. Dated February 1st, 2010, the same year I'd eventually ask Matthew Bay to be my assistant editor. Dear Drabblecast, I would like to present you with this story about the power of snuggling. I'm a writer and editor living in Austin, Texas. I've published in the Drabblecast, Pseudopod, Blackgate, and several less notable publications. Thank you for your consideration. The second rule of Snuggle Club, he says, giggling into his hand again, is you always have fun at Snuggle Club. Snuggle Club is located in a newly gentrified neighborhood on Austin's east side. It inhabits a building that once served as an athletic club and boxing gym for Tejano men looking to blow off steam after a long day at La Trabaja. Very little of the old flavor of the building remains. The interior has been completely remodeled. It is clean, well-lit, and tastefully designed. The lobby looks like a cross between a day spa and a Chinese nightclub. Dr. Franz has brought me to the shipping and receiving area. There is a loading dock, wooden pallets, and a pair of workers watching Univision in a back area. I might be the first reporter to see the backstage workings of Snuggle Club. This is where it all begins, says Dr. Franz. First, we receive the snuggle flesh, then we process it, then it goes to the customer service area. It's the last part that I'm most interested in. But Dr. Franz won't let me skip ahead, telling me, you need to see the whole process. That gives you the complete picture of the public service we offer. A buzzer rings, and the Mexican men spring to life. The metal door clanks upward and they slip underneath. By the time Dr. Franz and I walk outside, they're already waiting at the back of an idling Jeep Wagoneer. The driver asks that I not use her real name. She suggests the pseudonym Princess Sassy Boots. While the workmen carry away the thrashing corpse duct-taped to an uprooted stop sign, Sassy Boots haggles with Dr. Franz over the finder's fee. There's some concern over the puncture wounds on its neck and torso. Finally, Sassy Boots agrees to $50 in cash. Sassy Boots pockets the envelope and lights a cigarette while she talks. That was my boyfriend, she says. He slipped and fell on the slut he was screwing. Very tragic. This is her first time supplying Snuggle Club with its raw materials. She had read the advertisement on the back of the local alternative weekly newspaper. The ad came to mind when Sassy Boots found herself the owner of a newly reanimated corpse. After safely securing it, she drove straight over. They say you can't let them bite you, but seriously, how hard can it be to keep some dead guy from biting you? That's why the good Lord gave us tasers. The body of Princess Sassy Boots' former boyfriend is deposited in the processing room. The workmen fasten manacles to the animate corpse's wrists and ankles. The manacles are in turn fastened to winches in the corners of the room. When they're pulled taut, the body hangs spread eagle and horizontal in the middle of the room. We have perfected this process. It is a science. It takes less than 20 minutes to take an unruly corpse and turn it into snuggle flesh. The men go to work on the corpse like a pit crew on a race car, and Dr. Franz explains every action they take. First, we remove the blood and bodily fluids. The snuggle flesh will not need it. That's what the needles and tubes are for. The syringes and latex tubes lead to an electric pump, which winds and fills a jug with the blackened fluid. The pink Caucasian flesh of Sassy Boots' ex-boyfriend turns ashen. There's an actual gurgling sound, and the head trabajador nods to Dr. Franz and says, Esta vacío. 
so twisted. Matt stayed on with us till mid-2011, and here were some cool things that the Drabblecast did while I worked with Matt. We doubled our pay rate to authors from 1.5 cents a word to 3 cents a word, and we ran some awesome stories that Matt found. For example, A Matter of Size by Robert Yesnachik, a superhero story that involved midget snuff porn and some really, yeah, some really disturbing buried issues there in our protagonist's past. Little Lord Fauntleroy shakes his head. You already know the answer to that question, man-child. I ask it again anyway. Why did you make the movie? We're alone in the mouse hole where the barefoot porn star sent me, standing at opposite ends of the big oval table where the small wonders hold their meetings. Even from here, I can see the nervous wiggle of his buttersoft fingers. <laughs> you know I'd never do that. Fauntleroy's laugh is forced. Why, I'm as appalled by those crush films as you are. Not according to Lila Skintilla. I start walking around the table. The sound of my cracking knuckles echoes through the mouse hole. Lila says you run the whole operation. Fauntleroy rolls his eyes. <laughs> Who the bloody hell is this Lila character? I keep walking towards him, boots scuffing on the floor, waiting for him to make his move. Quit jerking around. Tell me why you did it. Suddenly, Little Lord Fauntleroy drops out of sight, pulling his usual trick. The one I've been expecting. Which is why I dropped to three foot five at exactly the same instant, and I'm waiting for him where he scurries under the table. Oh, bollocks. His voice sounds like a Muppet gargling gravel. He looks like he's been stepped on, because that's his gimmick. Instead of shrinking proportionately, his body accordions down. He looks like a cartoon coyote who's just waddled out from under a giant anvil, eyes blinking between layers of furry pancake atop two tiny scuttling feet. Oh, it's a great gimmick for throwing an opponent off his game. Great for getting out of the way of fast things. But how great is it for fighting, say, a seven-year-old boy? We started a special month every March called Women and Aliens Month back in 2010, featuring stories exclusively by women authors because it was clear that the majority of stories both that we were getting in our slush pile and in speculative fiction in general were written by men. Matt pointed this out and to my knowledge we were the first fiction zine to do something like this, certainly the first in fiction podcasts. We picked up an amazing run of short stories for that first Women and Aliens Month back in March 2010. I'd say it's one of our best and most overlooked runs of stories. If you're in the mood for a plunge into the archives, search for Drabblecast episodes 153 to 157. What Fluffy Knew by Christine Catherine Rush, Family Values by Sarah Genge, The Second Conquest of Earth by L.J. Daly, which, gah, I love that story. Going to the Chapel, a really fun story by Sandra O'Dell about a Texas wedding gone totally awry, which is just amazingly read by Lauren Singer. And Brief Candle by Ruthena Emrys, which was one of my favorite stories that year in which we did full cast. Here's a couple clips. I force myself to examine the details of him. Observe, Cassandra. The old picnic bench creaks under his weight. Even for a coose, he is huge. The bumpy, loose skin at his throat is the pale green of spring leaves. It hasn't yet darkened to full green-brown or begun to swell and dangle. So he is younger than the bulls who rule here, but old enough to wear the purple chest blazon and whip of a drover. Brawn, not brains. A young tough. He's traveled far from the nest. Why? To visit me, of course, the only attraction in this human cemetery. A sham fortune teller. Ah, but he doesn't know I'm shamming, or I'd be dead, or braceleted. He thinks I'm a priest. The bulls left us our religions, not from kindness, as some pretend to themselves, but to keep us docile, to tranquilize with hope. My mother's brand of snake oil soothsaying passed the test thanks to years on the bestseller list. My con is a protected faith. That this coos hasn't killed me tells me he thinks I can read his future. I'll give him what he wants. I shuffle the cards and ask the standard opening question in guttural pigeon cousglish. What's your name? A flash of green, 
a scrape of claw and stone, a slither of scales. Before I could react, his hand is squeezing my throat. His fingers are surprisingly cool, ropes of muscle, but his breath is hot and meaty, acidic. It stings my eyes. No questions, he grunts. I manage a hair of a nod. He lets go and settles back onto his bench. No questions, no give and take, no information to guide my deception. This will not end well, I realize. Without direction, anything I say will be wrong. So adapt, Cassandra, as you always do. Ask his questions for him. I give him a name, this coos who will kill me. Lord Jagged. Lord Jagged, why have you come? I shuffle the cards and consider. Because you have a problem. You're seeking your answers from a human, so you're desperate. If the coos knew about your problem, it would go badly for you. It must be a very big problem. I turn the first card. The butcher, in a suit of blades. A smiling man in a blood-stained apron with a cleaver in his hand and ropes of sausages dangling from his neck like tumorous pearls. A double chin, a steaming soup pot behind him. A stolid card. Workaday trudging, a willingness to dirty the hands to feed the family. But a card on a table is a dead thing, inert. The magic my mother developed manifests when the card is activated. I thumb it to stimulate memory receptors in the sensitive paint, and a tiny drama erupts from the card. Finger-tall people replaying a scene, a scene dredged from my past. Emily Joe Baker's day of wedded bliss was the biggest scandal the congregation of Milton County's First Brotherhood Baptist Church had endured since Ginger Lynn married that Leibowitz boy from the army. Bless her heart. But you just can't, Pastor Williams. You just can't. Brenda Lee Baker said in a desperate hysteria that spanned as many octaves as her sister Mimi had chins. What will people say? Now, 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 Brenda Lee, you know Amy Lee's a smart girl, a good girl. Pastor Ernest Williams said with as much grace as he could muster in the midday August heat. Well, she's in love, which is a sight better reason to get married than some of the other girls her age might manage. Oh, lordy, lordy, I don't even want to think about that. The mother of the bride wrung her hands like a washerwoman on Saturday. And besides, Tickle Beaks, Doc Peak, Bock Beaks. The name was a mouthful of broken teeth. He seems like a nice enough fella, for all that he's from outer space. Brenda Lee rounded on the shepherd of the flock. Nice enough? Nice enough? He has tentacles. Well, folks is always saying it takes all kinds. Tentacles, Pastor Williams. You hear me? Love is blind, Brenda Lee. You, of all people, should know that. Brenda Lee crossed her... And in the summer of 2010, the Drabblecast won its first Parsec Award for Best Speculative Fiction Magazine, which was quite an honor. We'd go on to win it the following two years as well in the same category, at which point we politely and respectfully decided that we'd had a great run and withdrew further nominations in the category. 2011 brought Matthew's retirement, and another Austin, Texas writer, Nikki Drayden, took over as assistant editor, and boy was she a real rock star. Nikki had written several stories for Drabblecast, and was all sorts of connected with new and upcoming authors out there. She started landing us all sorts of original stories, even commissioned stories, and in Women and Aliens Month she really shined, by landing us first publishings of stories and other works by authors that would be making big splashes in the industry in the years ahead. Tina Connolly, Joe Walton, Carrie Vaughn, Sarah Pinkster, so many more. Certainly Nikki also increased the racial diversity of her authors by a huge degree. And another thing happened in 2011. I had, since 2008, been doing a lot of guest hosting and guest narration for other podcasts, audiobooks, etc. I had the privilege of playing a bisexual fox anti-hero named Silvio in Abby Hilton's series Guild of the Cowrie Catchers. And to this day, it doesn't get much weirder than some of the lines I had to read for that. 
In 2009, I began co-hosting the very podcast that had originally been my biggest role model and inspiration for the Drabblecast, Escape Pod, the world's first and largest online science fiction podcast. This was a big deal for me, folks. I had essentially ripped off a lot of the format and general operational practices from Escape Pod in building up the Drabblecast, because the hell if I knew what I was doing. I mean this in terms of how Creative Commons licensing worked, and how I utilized that as a tool to build an audience base that would later come back and donate to support the podcast, simply out of goodwill and appreciation. That to show mechanics like intro structure, host commentary, episode feedback segments at the end. I was no Sarah Ely, that girl was way smarter than me, but I did, well, I did me pretty well. And people seem to like the two different flavors of host style at Escape Pod between Sarah and I. Well, most people. But I'm still hosting Escape Pod, right? Right. Well, actually, I'm kind of sharing that too. I already have been. You've heard plenty of guest hosts here, and that's been kind of fun. We can keep doing that too. It's been the intention for a while to try to find someone who can help out with it regularly, so that nothing falls behind if Steve flakes. We've found our co-host, we've brainwashed him into it, and I'm pleased to report that Norm Sherman of the Drabblecast will be officially co-hosting Escape Pod. Norm's work has always stirred my envy. The boy doesn't just talk and narrate amazingly good Flash stories, he also writes songs and does Foley effects and educates us on the dangers of freakish marine life. We're lucky to have Norm on the team. And no, this doesn't mean I'm vanishing. I like reading things out loud too much, and... Escape Pond Episode 217 Today's story The Kindness of Strangers By Nancy Chris Hello and welcome to Escape Pod. I'm your new co-host, Norm Sherman. Yeah, that's right, a new co-host. Now, I know some of you out there may be corrugating your various brows in a dubious manner right now, skeptical of the odd, sawdust, melon, curry-scented winds of change here at Escape Pod, and I'm empathetic to your concerns. You know, I remember when I first heard that they were making an Alien vs. Predator 2, and I was all like, what? Is nothing sacred anymore? What's next? Why don't they just make a constitution too? Or a holy bible too? Then I gave AVP2 a chance. And you know what? It's a damn fine film. And you know what else? They do amend the constitution from time to time. And Dan Brown just announced his newest book, Temple Scruples, the Bible sequel novel. It's bound to be a bestseller. So, just give me a chance. You remember back when you were in fourth grade, when you came to class that one day and your hot, busty teacher, Miss Spencer, was suddenly gone, replaced by some weird-looking, balding Latino guy with a frumpy button-down shirt and super tight, olive-colored jeans? Yeah, maybe he was a little awkward at first. Maybe he took a little while to find his groove, Maybe for some reason he always smelled like cured ham. But when all was said and done, you still ended up learning a couple things in fourth grade anyways, right? Now, I'm not saying that Steve Ely's been busted for posting hot nudie pics of himself on HowAboutDemApples.com, like you later found out Miss Spencer was, nor am I suggesting that there aren't sexy nude pictures of Steve made exclusively available to $100 a month subscribers to Escape Pod. What I am saying is that I'm Mr. Nunez, and I may smell like ham, but I want what's best for this class, so I'm going to do my best, teaching you how to subtract whole numbers and introducing you to some of the best science fiction stories you'll ever hear. Ever. Speaking of which, on to this week's story, The Kindness of Strangers by Nancy Cress. Escape Pond. Episode 216. Hello and welcome to Escape Pod, your podcast for fantastic weekly science fiction. I'm Norm Sherman. The world of online social networking is neat romping grounds for science fiction, 
because it inherently rides the fence of fiction and real life. Conflict and tension in relationships isn't too hard to come by. <laughs> you know, I don't usually tell people this, but since you're the internet and basically imaginary, I guess I trust you. I once met and dated a girl online, and it was weird. I thought she was awesome at first, but the more I actually got to really know her, the more I realized that she wasn't the one for me at all. Little things that I started out thinking were adorable, like her poor spelling and syntax, grew to be a real communication barrier. Her nagging was even cute at first, but then as we got more comfortable together, she got really high maintenance, and it turned into badgering, then demands for my bank account information and prompt fashionings. I'd ask her things like, Tanunbu, baby, when can I come visit? But she'd always have some sort of excuse, like, um, Nigeria's airports are all closed this weekend, or I can't, I'm visiting my beloved mother, Miss Joy Kennedy, a 48-year-old God-loving woman that owns two business in Dubai and husband with two children died in car accident five years ago. I mean, how's a guy supposed to argue with that? Still, the long-distance thing became too much. You can't really get to know a girl via email, especially when you miss half of her letters because for some reason they always seem to get blocked or accidentally filtered into your junk folder. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. Tenanbu. <clears throat> Dangerous things, those online relationships. But don't take it from me. Take it from this week's story, The Boyfriend by Madeline Ashby. Madeline's most recent I may have turned out to be a little controversial at first over there at Escape Pod for my certain, you know, brand of delivery. Here are some fun and colorful comments from forum members over there debating the sudden arrival of which Uncle Norm swept through their gates. Quote, It is an abrupt change, and I sure do agree that it'll take a bit for me to get used to him. I do like Steve more, but Norm ain't too bad. He was speaking the truth when he talked about losing a sexy teacher and getting some freak. Norm's attempted humorous intro to the last episode, Boyfriend, caught me by surprise, and I wonder just how much I was really going to like this guy. This week, I thought he was kind of insightful and funny, so I'm waiting for more before I formulate my opinion. Quote, I have no problem at all with Norm hosting on occasion. However, I have to say that if he does more, it will also be enough for me to give up on Escape Pod entirely forever. No problem, but nice knowing everybody. Laters. Quote, I think he'll grow into his new role. I remember when Norm came into the forums talking about starting his own podcast. He got ripped up one side down the other by some of our writers. Norm took it in and upped his game. He did the same once he launched the Drabblecast. I think if we give him honest, constructive criticism, he'll find what works here too. He's never gonna be Steve. Nobody could be, but I'm confident he'll be a good EP host. Steve was Sarah Ely, of course, before finding herself and transitioning, the original founder of Escape Pod, and some pretty big shoes to fill. And there are 13 pages of that conversation, folks. <laughs> 13. And you know what? Honestly, I probably agree with most of them. And there are plenty of pro-norm voices in there, too. I'd say it was about half and half. But clearly, I needed to tone it down a bit in there, or something. I don't know. Maybe like 5%, or... I don't really know how percentages work, 90%. It ended up working out one way or another, but needless to say, the Drabblecast benefited from an influx of new listenership from my involvement with Escape Pod and other podcasts and projects out there. And I had a lot of fun becoming more and more involved over there, all the way until 2013, when I was asked by the then editor, friend, and amazing writer, Mer Lafferty, to replace her as chief editor, a role I held for the next four and a half years. I'm going on about it so much, folks, because it was such a mutually beneficial partnership for the Drabblecast. I learned so much, and I think I was able to offer a lot in terms of editorial voice over there as well. Escape Pod went through a pretty scary financial dip back then, and thanks to the leadership of escape artists, the charismatic and amazing Alistair Stewart, as well as the whole team over there, we got out of it, and I got to be a part of all the behind the scenes for the next several years, while the podcast went from a phenomenal show, but kind of a scattered endeavor, to a well-oiled machine, 
Multiple sister podcasts blossomed out of it. A fantasy podcast called Podcastle. A young adult podcast called Cast of Wonders. Check them all out. They're all great. But it all started with a person named Sarah Ely, at least in terms of main influencers for the Travelcast. This was a woman crazy enough to go out on a limb and start what would become an influential and widely distributed enterprise from scratch back in 2005, nearly two years before the Travelcast. So it was my honor to interview Sarah and relive the old days, get her perspective. I'm here with uh, one of my uh, longtime idols and mentors, somebody who inspired me to start the Drabblecast, Sarah Ely, the uh, founder, the original host, the editor of Escape Pod, a groundbreaking science fiction podcast that really started a lot of things for a lot of people. And, um, you know, it's such an honor to be talking to you, Sarah. How are you doing? Life is good, Mr. Sherman. Uh, wait, wait. Do, do you like Mr. Sherman or do you prefer like the sitcom thing and everybody just to yell Norm? <laughs> Either one works. I go by Uncle Sherman sometimes too. You know, it's you could just say, "Hey, you." Ah, you're that uncle. Got it. Yeah, I'm the creepy uncle. Cool. I've always kind of felt like a little bit of a creepy uncle, uncle to the Escape Artists uh, Network. But... but it's that uncle who makes everybody laugh, and they're, they're, like that uncle is why the kids all want to come to it's the tr- family gatherings. It's true. Yeah. So I I support that uncle. I, I I support your weirdness. Oh, I appreciate that. You always have. I mean, it's that's kind of the thing that got me going with the Drabblecast, you know. No, it's it's really great to be here. It's it's fun to be talking about this stuff again. I've I've been kind of out of podcasting for a few years now, um, and I've I love the the connections that I've made, uh, so, yeah, you know, from all of that, and I'm really happy to be talking to you. It's, it's crazy looking back. Escape Pod started in 2005, and people, mm-hmm. you know, podcasting is more or less ubiquitous now, and uh, it's a thing. But back then, those were different days, weren't they? Yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I feel that. I mean, at this point, everybody around me is talking about all the podcasts, and there are these professionally produced, you know, deep explorations of mystery solving kinds of things and i'm like oh yeah neat do you like stories yeah. i can recommend a story podcast the basics it's down to the story you know your slogan was always have fun which really pared down everything and all the bullshit down to those two words i love that yep no i always i always wrote it in capitals too and then people thought that was pretentious of me so i wrote it in capitals more People always think something. I remember, like, you might be able to help me describe this, but the landscape of podcasting back then, for those with the the memories that don't stretch back over Mm -hmm. a decade, um, you know, Travelcast hadn't started yet. I remember commuting to guitar lessons, and, you know, I loved writing and tuning in. You were the the guy to listen to at that point, and Rick Stringer was around with Variant Frequencies and Murr and Scott, but there wasn't this Mm -hmm. plethora of options of different types of fantasy and, and horror and stuff. What was it like starting Escape Pod? Let's see. I, I think, yeah, I, I had found out about podcasting in kind of the early days because I was the kind of geek then that would like read Slashdot.org and people would talk about those things there. And so I, I discovered, uh, what was it, Dawn and Drew and, um, yeah, like Adam Curry was still doing his podcast and claiming mm-hmm. he'd invented the whole thing. <laughs> and, yeah, I... Like a few people when I got started in, in 05 had, had started to like podcast their novels. Uh, T. Morris was doing it. Right. Scott Ziegler was doing it. Um, a few other folks. Uh, no one had been doing short fiction at the time. And I, I, I had always had a passion for reading things aloud. That was kind of my favorite like activity cuddling in bed with somebody is to like mm-hmm. read a novel to them night after night. And yeah, I'd always kind of wanted to get into audiobooks or, or start up an audiobook business, but marketing actually is work mm-hmm. and figuring out how to sell that stuff sounded like work. And when I saw that podcasting was a thing that anybody with a little bit of technical prowess could just put out for free and not have to invest in more than just a, a bit of audio equipment. Um, yeah, it's something just kind of clicked. And I thought, oh, I could do this. And nobody was doing short fiction at the time. Mm-hmm. And uh yeah, the, the hard part was kind of getting the, the spousal permission at the time from who's, who's now my ex-wife. And, I, and, and yeah, I think what I said was, okay, no, I'm going to just like put out other people's stories. We're going to be like an audio magazine. And she said, well, yeah, who, like, how are you going to get the stories? And I said, um, we'll buy them from authors, maybe. And she said, great, where are you going to get that money? And I, I twiddled my thumbs a bit and thought, okay, well, I can put in a bit of investment on this. 
and like you know ask people for the money as it starts up and if i did, i was paying 20 bucks a story to begin with and i figured you know that's that i'd spend that on playstation games every week that afterwards mm-hmm. i didn't have time to play anymore um <laughs> but uh it worked out really well and after a few weeks um you know a few dollars would start trickling in here and there and after a couple of months i was at 20 bucks a week i was in the black and yeah not very but it was going and yeah it just sort of escalated from there and after about like five or ten or two hundred i guess depending on who you ask episodes i felt like i'd gotten pretty good at it and yeah i mostly it was it was because i was having fun yeah getting the word out i took chances to talk about like myself and my kids and just whatever the hell was going on and yeah, I, I thought that that was really like I, I, I thought I felt like those were the boring parts because people were really there for the story. So eventually I moved them from the front to the end. But I always got feedback about those parts. That's Funny. what podcasting has that nobody else has is that personal connection. You're, you're right. I remember back then people were um, serializing books like tea and, uh-huh. and stuff, but nobody was anthologizing short stories in the sense that you were. Um, and that that was a, a groundbreaking thing because it's so much more uh-huh. palatable to a, a commute or a trip and a podcast format of a 30 minute show. And, and clearly the fact that you put your own capital up from the get go meant that you believed kind of in what you were doing from the start, that this would work out hopefully well. That, yeah, no, I, I, I actually wasn't thinking about it very much. I'm, I'm pretty sure if I'd actually stopped to really look ahead and, and figure out what would be involved. I likely would not have really gotten started. Hmm. Um, it was it was kind of an in the moment. Okay, like it, it, in some ways, it was the most spontaneous thing I ever tried doing, and I suppose that's why I'd really succeeded, as opposed to the things that I just lay all these grandiose plans for and figure I have to have a, a complete, like, set of execution steps before I do them. I just started putting crap out there. Yeah, and. Yeah, I, I look back at it, and the early ones, compared to the later ones, were pretty crappy, but they were a start. And yeah, week after week, I just kept doing it because I felt like, okay, well, now people are listening. Like, I'll feel bad if I stop. I'll, I'll, I'll disappoint someone somewhere. I have no idea who they are, but I'm sure they'll be <laughs> disappointed. So I, I guess I'd better keep doing this. Mm-hmm. I love that though. You you started with the culture of paying authors and and paying for quality. Yeah, no, I, I felt I, I was also a writer. I'd had some short story publications right. and, and such, and I felt like if I was going to send something to like that, you know, all the serious writers said only send to paying markets. Take your own self seriously and take take your work's value seriously. Value yourself, and I really believed in that. And I thought if this stuff's ever going to be taken seriously, then that needs to be out there. And most authors were really happy to just sell audio rights because once they'd sold the thing to Asimov Science Fiction Magazine or Analog or somebody, you know, the magazines didn't want the audio rights. Um, You know, everybody had days, right? Those were the good old days before they caught on. Now it's uh, the group media packages of, you know, all uh, all rights kind of lumped into one thing. It's a little harder to get them now that those dinosaurs are kind of catching Mm -hmm. on to the full rights package. But, uh, you know, another cool thing that you kind of added into your podcast mix was aside from that was um, the audience feedback at the end that you started incorporating. And that that ended up building this um, not just a podcast, but a community. I was wondering when the forums Mm -hmm. really started picking up and was it because of that audience feedback piece or how did you build a community? Uh, I think it was at least a year before it kind of occurred to me that that having like discussion boards would be a good idea that somebody might want to get on them. Mm. Um, And yeah, after that, yeah, it really did become a a really lovely community. And yeah, I my 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 worst um, skill at that point was always delegating. And I think the forums was where I really learned to start that. There were a lot of people happy to step up as moderators that actually were really intelligent people and had had a lot to contribute. And I, you know, I sort of just would would scan more than I would get involved in what was going on. I kind of feel like, okay, if someone does or doesn't like a story, the the worst thing you can do is argue with them. Yeah, Yeah, everybody has a right to their opinions. And so, yeah, listening and hearing what people said and yeah, it, it gave me more material for one thing. I mean, who would turn that down? Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, it, it gave a way to, to feel like there was a conversation going on with the stories that were being presented. The, the stories were always core, but how people felt about them was also important. 
And I feel like this this way, the listeners would feel some kind of connection, would understand that what they that they were actually a part of something. So that was cool. Yeah, your forums were kind of where I first dipped my toe in and started re- uh, asking questions about you know rights and what you, the protocols and things. I mean, I'm a musician. I'm a classical guitarist. The whole reason I started Drabblecast originally was to promote my music. Uh-huh. And um, and then it kind of switched into the storytelling piece of things. And uh, those mm-hmm. like Anne Leckie and some folks in there really helped educate me about like the oh, right awesome. way to do things, you know. And it was because of the forums and the, the conversations happening in there. That's great. Yeah, no, she's so cool. Her, her novel's really taking off now oh, too. Oh, big time! Yeah. yeah, she's she's doing great. Um, yeah, it's I, for what it's worth. I mean, as as really honest praise, I was always I I, I always loved your music. Actually, just before this call, I was playing some of your songs for Sadie because I'm like, okay, this is about who's this is what I'm about to be talking to, and <laughs> I was playing like everybody's got nipples um, from your like first album and mm-hmm. from the like the songs you had from Drabblecast. I I was playing um, you know like Heartache Over Innsmouth, which mm-hmm. I love. I mean, that's the best Lovecraftian torch song that there is. <laughs> Um, competition is yeah, not just, super steep in that category no, but, but <laughs> i mean just misunderstood that that really captures the essence of being a teenage zombie mm. and yeah i i loved that like to, i was always jealous of your production values and i was jealous of what seemed to me from the outside like this this tremendous creative fount because you were not only putting out like stories every week and and you know, narrating those entirely yourself for the most part and putting sound effects on them and, and giving a roundness to the way they were produced. But you're also just like spinning off these songs on the fly. You know, anybody who donated, you know, a certain amount could just give whatever song theme they wanted to. And you would just spin something up that was brilliant satire and like almost uniformly hilarious. Oh, and thanks. I love those. So, yeah, I, I felt like that's that's why I was such a fan of yours is because I felt like you, you, you took the idea of a story podcast and you made it funny and you and you brought that music and that sound and and more than just narration into it. And I had no idea how you got all that stuff done. People have said the same thing to me. How did you get so much done in the week? And looking back, I still have no idea. That's funny. I remember I was talking, I was interviewing and talking to our original editorial team, which was my two other best friends, Luke and Kendall, when we started this whole thing. And it was just first 10, 20 episodes were, as you described, you know, hit or miss. And it was a lot of stories that we were writing. And um, the, the transitional moment for Drabblecast and for me was uh, having you write back to me and, and say some of the things that you said and, and me feeling like, wow, I this guy that I, you know, was listening to, this, this person that I thought of as a semi-celebrity on the podcasting world, because I saw what you were doing, uh-huh. actually thinks that I've got like something to offer and uh, I stepped it up after that and we really transitioned from a, a, a butt and poop kind of oriented story <laughs> podcast to something where I was actually paying authors uh-huh. for quality science fiction you know you, you, you refined the butts into a full grown Mongolian death world absolutely I mean, how, we were, who, who else could do that yeah yeah uh-huh. we took ourselves a little bit more seriously we started accepting more slush I started opening up to three cents a word instead of free and at that point I think you had asked me to read a story on your podcast um the best story ever i thought and it wasn't because of my narration <laughs> it was because it was just astro happened. monkeys astro monkeys I, I just i remember going home and spending like all day trying <laughs> to get the edits perfect for that and mm-hmm. um and then you wrote back saying something to the effect of like wow dude you are like ocd about your production quality <laughs> uh-huh. yeah no i i did the exact same when you asked me to read for the last question that asimov yeah story. I I did the exact same thing because I was I was like okay finally I I it, it I'd been retired for a couple of years for one thing so I didn't have most of my original sound equipment but it's like this is for the Drabblecast I've got to get this right so I got into my closet with all the clothes hanging so there'd be no reverb <laughs> yeah just over optimize the hell out of everything because I knew you'd have a bunch of people reading for this story and I I wanted to maintain par oh well that's an honor to hear that's 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 amazing. But how can that be all of Universal AC? Z-Prime had asked. Most of it is in hyperspace. In what form it is there, I cannot imagine. Nor could anyone, for the day had long since passed, Z-Prime knew, when any man had any part of the making of a Universal AC. 
Each universal AC designed and constructed its successor. Each, during its existence of a million years or more, accumulated the necessary data to build a better and more intricate, more capable successor in which its own store of data and individuality would be submerged. The universal AC interrupted Z-Prime's wandering thoughts, not with words, but with guidance. Z-Prime's mentality was guided into the dim sea of galaxies, and one in particular enlarged into stars. A thought came, infinitely distant, but infinitely clear. This is the original galaxy of man. But it was the same, after all, the same as any other, and Z-Prime stifled his disappointment. D sub one, whose mind had accompanied the other, said suddenly, And is one of these stars the original star of man? The universal AC said, Man's original star has gone nova. It is now a white dwarf. Did the men upon it die? Asked Z prime, startled and without thinking. The universal AC said, A new world as in such cases, was constructed for their physical bodies in time. Yes, of course. You, you, you didn't just have personality, you had chutzpah. And I, and I felt like, yeah, like chutzpah was needed for something like that. Well, thanks, yeah. At, at some point I became the, the editor of that podcast, and it was just this whoa kind of moment where I was editing like, the, the podcast that I used to commute to and listen to and adored. Uh, did you ever imagine it growing into something like that? Uh, not really. No. I mean, I, I, it was about a year before I actually turned it into a business as opposed to just kind of paying it out of my personal checking account and such. And, uh, yeah, I, I think that's, that's part of why I retired from it is because I, I enjoyed doing the hosting. I enjoy doing the editing and all that stuff. Um, I was a terrible business person. Hmm. And so, like yeah, having having other folks who could like, handle the numbers side really made things easier. And a- after a while, I just I, I started to feel like I was kind of becoming more of an albatross um, to the stuff than I was really able to contribute much. And uh, so yeah, I I I mean they're they're some of the best five years I ever had. But yeah, I I felt really good about the way I was able to just step away from it and know that. The podcast would go on, the audience would still get what they wanted to get from it, and that a, a difference was still being made, a contribution was still being made to bringing people into science fiction, to bringing people into story. That, that's always something that mattered to me. Well, I think I think you're underselling almost. Just, I mean, you're definitely underselling. Actually, Escape Pod's up for a Hugo Award for best semi-prosian this yes, year. Yes, it is. What an honor! I mean, that's your baby. And, and yeah, no, that that makes my heart go pitter pat. I mean, honestly, at the time, it was kind of hard to wrap my head around. What was the first story that you remember reading? A short story that really was like, I love science fiction. <sighs> the first one I really remember hitting me hard and deep was Nightfall by Isaac mm. Asimov. And that's why when I was able to make that um, episode like 100 of mm-hmm. Escape Pod, that was a big deal to it me. Was. Yeah. It, it was. It was worth it, though, because that story, it, it was elected decades ago as like the greatest science fiction story of all time. And I think it still holds up really, really well. Mm-hmm. It had everything in terms of just p- human beings reacting to their world being turned upside down. And to me, that's why science fiction still matters. We are in a world that is changing almost monthly and that is – there are no precedents. We don't have maps for the territory that Earth is in right now, that the human race is in right now. Science fiction is the best we've ever had for people looking forward, trying to imagine what might things be like. Short stories were always the best idea factory for science fiction and short stories were always the least successful part mm-hmm. of science fiction from a financial perspective. Right. And the, the the best fan mail I ever got was when people were saying, oh, well, thanks for doing Escape Pod. I started listening to it, and now I'm subscribed to Interzone, or I'm subscribed to Asimov's, or one of the magazines. That they, were, they were searching out more of this stuff, bringing people into the genre. That's where I felt like the difference was being made, because... That's raising the awareness of everybody in terms of how to just deal with the idea of change. Mm. If there's one fundamental to speculative fiction, it's dealing with change. 
And that's the thing we desperately need as a people right now. So that that's so yeah, I got to, I got to feel like okay, I was throwing my little bit of good karma in, and and doing something good for people, and yeah, I'm I'm still really proud of that. That is exactly how I feel about science fiction. Asking those questions, the last story that that was my version of Nightfall that we ran on on Drabblecast was also asking questions. It was asking a supercomputer, you know, questions mm-hmm. about what's going to happen next and not knowing answers to things and, and coping with, uh, mm-hmm. with answers that you hear and answers that you don't know. And what a, what a time to live in right now and uh, to, to be able to cope with not knowing and to be able to ask and think and talk without, <sighs> you know, destructive mm-hmm. behavior. Every culture in the, in the on Earth has had mythology has had ways of dealing with the numinous and the you know the things that are bigger than us the things that are bigger than just the things you can see you know a few miles down the road and you know science fiction is our version of it um it's one of our versions of it comic books are one of our versions of it superheroes are our epic heroes um, you know, just as much as Gilgamesh and King Arthur and all of those were before, um, you know, just as much as Anansi and various African cultures and South American cultures, everybody's had heroes, everybody's had story, everybody's had those as models and templates for how to engage when the world is challenging. And you know, this, this is our version of it. I'll tell you what, though, I'm way happier that you're relaunching the Drabble, the Drabblecast and and keeping that torch going, because that was always your creative fire. That was always your creative spark. And I feel like the what what you did at Escape Pod was fantastic. I feel like the Drabblecast was where you were you, fundamentally and most. And I I really want to see more of that. I want to hear more of that. So I'm thrilled that you're that that you are, you know opening the floodgates and and celebrating the Drabblecast. I, I, I want to see where that goes. I'm excited. You know, I appreciate you spending some time here with me talking. This has been a really awesome conversation with you, Sarah. It was a lot of fun for me. The other big thing that happened in 2013-14 was our next and final editorial shift. The formidable Nikki Traden shifted to longtime Drabblecast contributor, forum mod, and master Drabbler, Nathan Lee. Nate, I have to say, had it more together than anyone I've ever worked with. His OCD comes in really handy when it comes to my ADD. During Nate's tenure, which lasted up to 2017 when the Drabblecast faded ever so gently into the breeze like the strange but unforgettable scent of a cherished loved one's shirt with the peculiar, unsettling, but decidedly indistinct smell of either Thai food or a rotting deer carcass in the distance. At this point, Drabblecast is commissioning original work from authors, right and left, like The Wreck of Charles Dexter Ward, for example, which topped off the Boojum trilogy by Sarah Manette and Elizabeth Baer, our most popular series. Our ever-growing fan base started some really cool projects, like our fan-run, fan-produced, fan-cast, The Dribblecast, which anyone could ask permission from authors of stories and drabbles in our discussion forums and produce their own episodes on our Dribblecast feed and website. And Drabble Classics, a best of Drabblecast anthology podcast that longtime fan and appointed editor Charity Helton put together to relive past shows and facilitate discussion on them. It's time for Drabble Classics. I'm Charity Helton. I can't do any better than the description of this episode on the website, so I'm going to read that to you. Norm spends this episode doing his very best cheesy Vincent Price-styled horror show host. Note. Not a Vincent Price imitation, but an imitation of a really bad Vincent Price imitator, complete with an interminable string of puns about ghouls and ghosts. I don't want to spoil the story for you, so I won't read the rest of the description. But as a special treat, we do have Sean Garrett joining us for our listen and discussion. He is the editor of Pseudopod, which is Escape Artist's horror podcast. This is Drabblecast number 87 from October 29th, 2008. The Boxborn Wraith by Kevin David Anderson. Benny took a deep breath and then jumped to his feet with a simian's grace. He felt strong, hungry, and ready to make good on a promise. He didn't know what he was becoming, but he did know that Shao 
would be the first to find out. A second chance at life. What a heartwarming tale. Never give up. Being buried wow. alive. Well, I was I was really blown away by the. Uh, I don't know. For me, it was a really typical story, up until one point. When it, when it started out, we had he's being bullied into the hole, gets in the box, dirt's there, being dug up. Okay, maybe this is moving the story in a new direction. And then all of a sudden. It's coming from below, and my whole, like, complete perspective on the story just flipped 180. I was like, whoa, this is something very different. And, and, and again, if you've seen, like, this, this is almost like a trope or something before, then I can see how that wouldn't maybe blow you away. But for me, I've, I've not really ever thought, like, it's coming, coming from below to get you, you know? I thought that was really cool. That's a good setup. I yeah. mean, there, uh, there are Lovecraftian ghouls in that sense of being dog or simian. Mm-hmm. And not just kind of ghoul either in the Arabic demon sense or the kind of guy that eats dead flesh uh-huh. sense, you know. Which I was I've thinking never... white apes or something like that, like kind of the same thing. <laughs> yeah. And lastly, as we close up here, a pretty cool thing that happened and marked an important milestone for both Nate and I. Because of our ever-growing listenership and their dedicated support, the Travelcast was able to raise our author pay rates to current professional industry standards at six cents a word, which was quite the honor. You know, we really do respect the people that write these stories, and we respect the people that narrate these stories, not to mention the people that we bring these stories to. Going back to the Travelcast values we mentioned in part one of this retrospective, quality. And I know that sounds cheesy, especially coming from someone who spent a good 30 minutes or so of intro time in the past explaining to you just how convoluted and insane duck penises and vaginas are, but in my defense, do you know just how convoluted and insane duck penises and vaginas are? If the answer to that question is no, well, let's just table that discussion till you listen to Drabblecast episodes 167 and 168, okay? Because then you can judge me. But for now, let's hear from Nate about these golden years of the Drabblecast, since a lot of the stories and a lot of what defined us since 2014 had his mark on it. I'm on the phone here with uh, former Travelcast editor Nathan Lee. How are you doing, Nathan? As well as can be expected under the circumstances. <laughs> Such a great typical Nathan response. Nathan is known as Scattered Cat on our forums and elsewhere on the internet uh, and is a master Drabbler. I dare say possibly the best hundred-word story writer that I've ever come across, possibly in the world. Uh, he's <clears throat> got a, uh, a knack Unlike- for it. Yeah, I mean, I would love to see somebody challenge him. I think that he's he tends to win our, our contests and stuff. He's got a real control and mastery of the medium, and we are the Drabblecast, so that matters to, to some degree, and it's certainly one of the things that I think that sparked my eye and, and had uh, had Nathan uh, working beside me in the end as, a, as editor. But uh, we just wanted to talk a little bit about those, those days. We've gotten past uh, the early kind of awkward teenage years of Drabblecast. And Nathan, you kind of joined us after Nikki set us up with um, some more infrastructure. And we were getting some bigger name stories. And at, your, uh, at the juncture where we had you, we, we actually jumped up to professional rates to six cents a word. So it was kind of our, uh, our golden era, if you will. Exciting times. Indeed it was. Indeed it was. Uh, let's get to the Drabble thing real quick, since to me it always kind of came down to Drabbles. Drabblecast is, you know, we try and do short stories in the short sense that are really punchy and are engaging, but also very provocative and, and have all that word economy involved in it and not long, lengthy novellas. But what, what do you do? How did you get into Drabbling? How did you find out about the Drabblecast? Uh, that kind of stuff. Uh, the Drabbling actually is because uh, back in 2008, there I was I had decided that I was going to start trying to write and sell stories, you know, as a professional author. I was going to finally do the fiction thing that I'd always wanted to do, and uh, I joined some random writing forum that was full of awful, awful things. Um, I'm sure we've all anybody who's been a writer has spent some time on a writing forum Mm -hmm. for newbie writers. Um, But one of the things that they had there is that it was absolutely overloaded with special social features, one of which was a journal thing. 
I was like, that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard of, so I have to use it for something. But I don't keep diaries, really. I'm not a diary person. So I decided I would just write a 100-word story every day, and that would be my journal. So I started doing that uh, on that little forum thing, and then I was like, I don't really like this forum anymore, but I do enjoy writing the stories every day. I think it's good exercise. So I just went to Blogspot and started posting a story every day. Uh, and I picked 100 words because I wanted to do something with microfiction, and I had read about uh, the, the Monty Python, the Drabble term, and I was like, that sounds great. Yeah, that was basically it, and it was a writing exercise that I kept up for... I think I finally said it was officially dead sometime in 2016. Huh, you're talking about the Mirror Shards site, right? Yeah, Mirror Shards. How many Drabbles do you think you made in total there? I mean, I missed I missed some days here and there, but it was a good, a lot of Drabbles. Yeah, and you'd say it helped your, uh, your writing a lot. It def- I, I had a tendency to, at the time when I was first starting out, to kind of wander off. Like, I'd start writing, and I'd kind of get lost on stuff, and I'd spend too much time on one thing and too little time on other things. And uh, having the drabbles where it was like, you have to pare it down to nothing. You can't keep any ornamentation. Um, Because if you do, you won't be able to finish the story. Like, physically, you can't tell Mm -hmm. the physical story. And so learning to trim away all of my beloved... uh, descriptive phrases and cute turns of fire and just like asides and comments stuff that is actually i mean there there is a place for this sort of stuff also but learning to rid myself of my particular bad habit it worked for me for that i remember reading your drabbles before you were an editor and uh and going what who is this guy you know like i i subscribed to your blog i was super busy and like also trying to do my podcast and everything and and then you're also well known as the guy who wrote pretty much the you know the <laughs> i don't know how you say it the rosetta stone or the holy grail of drabbles which uh i'll link in our little show notes here but the work that must be done the work yes i was gonna say the most drabble cast drabble yeah definitely um, the most drabble cast and people are always asking what was the episode with that one about the teddy bears that we were gonna hammer In the factory that makes teddy bears, there are rosy-cheeked women who stuff the soft padding into the fur. They laugh and tell each other about their grandchildren. In the factory that makes teddy bears, artists paint bright patterned bow ties and miniature jackets. They smile and have camaraderie contests to see who can make the most delightful mixture of colors. In the factory that makes teddy bears, there is a sad-faced old man with a hammer. As each fluffy body passes by his station and sits up, blinking with the wonder of the new world, he swings the hammer once, sharply. That's what we're looking for on our show. And, and at that point, that, that must have been the one where I was like, yeah, this guy can help me out. I can pull this guy in, into the team here, I think. Well, I mean, and that was how I got into the Rebelcast is basically I had all of these 100-word stories, and I'm like, nobody is going to do anything with this. And then somebody's like, why don't you look at the Drabblecast? I'm like, the Drabblecast? Okay. Do they do nothing but Drabbles? No, they do short stories. Okay. <laughs> Yeah. Well, I thought it was beautiful that you um, evolved into being, you know, first an assistant editor and then the chief editor. But the whole time, Drabbles were kind of your specialty. Like we really had a booming Drabble section in our forums that you would kind of curate and you would give advice to people. And you kind of you had themed episodes where you'd find a good story by, you know, Keys Johnson or something. And then you would and we would put out, hey, here are the four themes this month, you know, and you would kind of look for stuff. So the Drabble master himself was here in charge of the Drabblecast Drabble forums and really curating that and helping folks. That was a neat thing. I enjoyed that. Yeah, it's uh, seeing the connection and then trying to draw it out. And that was the fun bit of like searching through the drabbles on the forums, trying to find one that spoke to something that I saw in that week's story, whether it was a theme, whether it was a type of theme like aliens or zombies, or whether it was like even just like a word or just kind of a feeling and looking for for that 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 thread of connection and, and then kind of putting it in and saying, here we go. Yep. Uh, I mean, I can. You just summed up really well 
what I think was the Travelcast's golden age, really, but where we were um, kind of had several folks doing that together uh, of that same mindset where the whole episode uh, from the Drabble to my host spot or any sort of bits I was throwing in to the story to the twabble at the end, everything kind of unified around uh, anything as, as small as, uh, you know, losing a friend or as big as, you know, apocalypse from a, a zombie or something like that. They all had some sort of direction and that helped. To me, that was a neat thing because it included so many members of the community, both in the twapples and the drabbles and, uh, mm-hmm, you know, but mm-hmm. it also uh, kind of gave some coherency to what, what otherwise before that felt like a scattershot kind of variety show. There is chaos and there's randomness and then there is artistic chaos. There is there is something that has been deliberately placed in a way that appears haphazard. Yeah, intentional mayhem. Yes. And uh, another example of where you kind of excelled at that and where that became a thing in our later years was uh, the trifecta episodes and, and also the double I loved headers. The, I loved doing those. Yeah, your trifecta episode, and that's, I could tell, because the, the minute I had you in and said, like, Nate, can you be chief editor? And you were like, I'm insane. Sure. Because <laughs> I just couldn't handle <laughs> why, it. Why not? Why, why not? And the first thing you did was slap down like 10 straight trifecta episodes, which to me was, always, I love trifectas, but um, at the same time, it's a lot of work because it's three different narrators, three different stories, and they're all around mm-hmm. a theme. And you're, you're so into this theme and, and the microfiction pulling into something that you, that was a big thing at first for you. And let's back up a little bit. What um, yeah. got you into writing in the first place? And in particular, writing speculative fiction and interested in this kind of stuff, weird fiction. I mean, I was a weird kid, highly imaginative. So I read a lot. I spent a lot of time reading. Didn't have many friends. Didn't have any friends most of the time. Um, but I had a lot of books. Um, looking back, I can also see, you know, that I was struggling with various degrees of clinical depression, um, which I medicated by reading a lot of books. Hmm. Yeah. <laughs> there was there was one year where the only time. I didn't feel miserable was reading How Holiday Inn, the second book in the Benicula series. Oh, I, love Benicula. I, yeah. love, I love Benicula. I love Benicula to pieces. Um, but only only Holiday Inn. And I would start reading it, and as soon as I got to the end, I would flip back to the beginning and start reading it again. And I read it for pretty much the entirety of sixth grade. I just read that book over and over. So, like, you know. Well, if there's a book to read over and over again, you, you got a good one there. And no, it's a great one. I love that book still. Uh, anyway, so always, always reading, always a weird kid, always very imaginative, always making up stories. And then, uh, yeah, I was like, I want to, I want to write. I want to be a writer. I want to do that. Like, that's the thing that I want to do with my life. And like I said, then in 2008 is when I uh, decided to actually make a go of that. I was going to ask you what a couple of your favorite episodes are. I always think that's indicative of an editor's choice in story. Oh gosh. I know one of them, obviously, uh, anything by Shannon Garrity is going to be a go. Oh God! Yes, yes. No, uh, and of those, I would say specifically, how did Flying the, the, the hatred of the my hatred neighbor's dog? Neighbor's dog was, yeah, that, that was, was the fucking greatest thing in the entire history of ever. And you're not alone uh, in that. By any <laughs> my neighbor's dog went on barking. I could hear it throwing itself against the fence in a fit, really angry. Now, the next morning, I was at the mall with the dawn. The hate kiosk didn't open for another hour and a half. I got myself an orange Julius and waited for the college kids to show up and get everything running. I broke the meter. Thousands of people work as professional hate generators, but when you get down to brass tacks, 90% of the industrial hate in North America is provided by the 12 top haters. That's how much of a power differential there is. Some people just hate that much more than everyone else. Did you live in Quebec before you came out here? Chances are your electricity came from Andre Grant, a formal file clerk who hates modernist philosophy, digital recordings, saxophone music, pants on women, and all television. You were somewhere in New England? Well, your generator was probably Emily Jenkins, or Jackson, I forget her last name. She's a germaphobe who sits under the odometer and thinks about dirt all day. Southern states? Gotta be Nate McClintock, an octogenarian who won't share his personal hatreds. Having met him, I think that's for the best, but... I have to give the man credit. He hates hard. Large parts of Mexico are powered by two sisters who can't stand onions. And if you lived anywhere along the West Coast, you got your power from me. Me and my hatred of my neighbor's dog. It's a good job if you like to hate, which I do. At first, I had an office at the little hate plant near UC Davis. They started me off. (laughs) 
<laughs> well, Shannon has such a good, oh man, her timing and her comedic timing is like next to none. Her writing is so funny. Um, and even just Absolutely hearing, impeccable. just hearing like the type of laugh you gave, like a, a joyful childlike glee. And even remembering that story, uh, it should be indicative of how great that story was, but you love that one, man. And, and so many I listeners did too, so because much. something really like wonderful happened there with, uh, with the nexus of her and you and, and Drabblecast producing it. And that wasn't her only story. We had had a lot with her, but I can't wait to see where Shannon goes. It's just neat stuff is everywhere out there when you look for it. And it sometimes mm-hmm. has that spark or that little ding of Drabblecast-ness to it. And then we just put our heads together and see if it'll work out in audio. There are a lot of really good stories in the world that are not Drabblecast stories. And there are a lot of Drabblecast stories that are very Drabblecast, but that are not the greatest stories in the world. Yeah, that's a good point. It's a hard thing to ride. We we want people to never know what to expect when they come to our show because we say that we're a speculative fiction market, right? So we're throwing out horror and fantasy and sci-fi and we're lumping it all together. So you never really know if you're going to get a funny story or whatnot, but you know you're going to get something that the Drabblecast is, right? So mm-hmm. whatever that is, that thing that we do that other places don't do as well, they do other things really well. So... It's been hard to find that place uh, 10 years, but uh, I think we've done a pretty good job of getting there. Huzzah. Huzzah. And thanks to you, Nathan. Really? No. Yeah, to a large part, and many other folks, but <laughs> certainly you were a critical part of, of keeping it all together. Yeah. <laughs> and, well, folks, that pretty much wraps it up. I've talked about why we pod faded, and hopefully at this point you've heard me talk plenty about our big Kickstarter plans in September and our goal to relaunch in a big way. Right now I'm putting together new staff from so many of you that reached out and offered to help. We're setting things up in terms of the business, in terms of the Kickstarter, and it's all pretty exciting times. I realize that most podcast players only keep maybe the last 50 episodes or so in their feeds, tops. That's why if you want to dig in further and really hear the full history of the Travelcast, 10 years of strange stories, you can go to our website at www.travelcast.org and download every episode of our show all the way back to episode one and hear it yourself. There's a link there that says, Download Your Way Through the Archives, and there are 386 episodes to fill up your phone memory and spare time there. If you're currently a supporter of the Drabblecast at the automated $10 a month level, an option you also have from our website, Drabblecast.org, is to get full access to our backlogs of the premium content feed, Drabblecast B-Sides, which has another 68 episodes of glorious strangeness. It's been a crazy and fun ride, and we're excited to launch back into things with you folks in the fall. These past ten years have been... Well, you know exactly what they've been now that you've heard the story. Can you imagine what the next ten years are going to be like now? That's what I find myself doing a lot of these days. Imagining. Ray Bradbury once said, Anything you dream is fiction, and anything you accomplish is science. And therefore, the whole history of mankind is nothing but science fiction. So then, what about the future, Ray? I'm sure old R.B. would agree that if anything, the future is defined as that which is waiting to be written, waiting to be shared, to be experienced. Until next time, weirdos, this is Norm Sherman reminding you of the power of snuggling. <laughs>